Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to do a little bit of review this morning because it's been a good eight weeks since we've studied this. And some of you um, probably forgot some of the things we've talked about. And it's pertinent to our text this morning because it really culminates in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, some of the things we've been looking at. We began studying this portion of scripture several months ago uh, as Paul writes to this church in Corinth, this church that he founded, this church that he loves dearly. And um, we saw in these opening chapters that it was a church that was gifted with every spiritual resource. It had everything possible that it could ever need. And it was also a church that was wrestling with very real and some very serious deficiencies. Um, It was a church that Paul couldn't help but give thanks to God for, while at the same time being a church that needed correction, a church that needed a counsel, as we see in the later chapters. So the church at Corinth is in many ways like so many churches we see in and uh, have been a part of today. Every true church where the gospel's preached and there are true believers is gifted with the requisite spiritual resources and opportunities that are needed for growth. We have everything we need. But in many of those same churches, there are seasons of time where there are serious deficiencies might, might emerge and, and things might really be difficult. Every true church is one in which we can give thanks to God for all that he is doing and all that he has given to the church. And at the same time, we may be required to correct and to counsel those who are part of it. That's why Paul can say, as he does in the opening verses of the letter, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, such that you are not lacking in any gift, Right? He can say that in verses 4 to 7, and then immediately in the same breath in verses 10 to 11, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be of the, made complete of the same mind in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So the Corinthian church, like so many other churches, Uh, is one full of inescapable evidences of God's grace in the people's lives, and it is also simultaneously a church full of broken, sinful people clinging to the cross. And I think that's why, as we study and read this letter, and as I study and work through it, this letter letter resonates so uh, personally with our hearts, because he could just as well have been writing to our church or to the church down the street. The, the, the picture here may look very different in our church or in the church around the corner, but the, and the intensity of those circumstances may vary. It may not be identical to this church, but the spiritual temptations and the biblical prescriptions for dealing with those things, those don't ever change. Those are exactly the same, and that is what Paul is beginning to unpack here in these opening chapters. If you look at uh, chapter 1 from verses 10 to 17, uh, and even into three, 2, 3, and 4, he, he kind of expands on it. We see this overwhelming spiritual temptation within their body that Paul confronts, and that is their sinful pride and the division that was happening in their midst. There was, as we just read, a quarrels that were had broken out among various factions or believers in this church. He says, now I mean this, each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So the Corinthian church was was carving itself up from the inside out into smaller and smaller pieces by essentially boasting in their preferred leaders. Some people lined up with Paul, some people lined up with Apollos, others lined up behind Peter, and so forth. They weren't divided, it's important to note, they were not divided over profound truths. 
That was not what was driving this. They weren't, defined, they weren't um, d- trying to uh, divide over uh, wrong views of Scripture or a wrong view of the gospel or the wrong views of who Christ is and his deity or the, or the Trinity or any of these profound things. No, their division had nothing to do with profound truth. It had everything to do with partisan rivalry. It was a matter of partisan uh, contention between different factions. And Paul calls this out in verse 13 of chapter 1 with a concentrated dose of reality. He asks these rhetorical questions to them. Has Christ been divided? Was Christ, excuse me, was, uh, was Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The obvious answer to those questions is, of course not. Christ is not divided. Paul is not your savior. Neither is Apollos or Cephas or anybody else. The questions, then, are a, a reduction to absurdity. That's the, the rhetorical force of these, those questions. He's trying to show them and us that arrogance toward one another is incompatible with the humility that is necessary uh, and, and, and should be evident among those who have come to the foot of the cross. As we learned last Sunday, the Great Commission is uppermost. It is so important as we go about this task of ministry. We exist to make disciples of Christ, and those disciples run to win. That's our commitment as a church. And we do that not by worldly wisdom, not by sophisticated speech, not by power politics in the church or building a brand, but by the clear proclamation of the Word of God by with humility and with absolute dependence upon God's saving power. That's why he ends in verse 17 by saying, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be voided or made invalid. The end of verse 17 there opens the door then to what the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 are going to tell us. And that is, he shows us as we look through that door, as we studied it, uh, that his own life and ministry, Paul says, my own life and ministry, both what I said and how I said it, that stands in stark contrast to the prideful arrogance that he saw and heard about in their body, in the church. Some of the Corinthians had set way, way too high a premium on man's wisdom and eloquence, and in their pride in those things, and the people who embodied them, they were, in that pride, they were essentially pulling at the fabric of the church and ripping it apart. And sadly, you know, a lot of, that's true today as well. I mean, it happens often, more often than not. A lot of pastors and people in the pews treat the gospel and the cross of Christ as if it were um, some kind of vehicle for self-promotion or self-fulfillment. But when they do that, Paul says they take the cross of Christ and they make it void. They turn it on its head and they empty it of all that it offers and all that it demands. So we need to understand, and I think the takeaway from these opening chapters, especially chapter 1, is that the faithful preaching of the cross, preaching that consistently leads people to put their faith and trust in Christ alone and to obey that word, that kind of preaching and that kind of living will never be done in a status-conferring way. It, it doesn't promote self by doing that. The, way, the word of the cross is foolishness, verse 21 says, to those who are perishing. He, the, God was well pleased through that foolish message to save those who believe. So the word of the cross is foolishness to the world. And as you get into verses 26, 27, and 28, we see that the way of the cross is humbling. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And he does that, verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. So the word of the cross is foolishness. The way of the cross is inherently humbling. And therefore, we should expect the same for us. Paul, for his part, said, I came to you with this humility. He came with the word of the cross 
and he came by the way of the cross. If you look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he says, I came to you, brethren. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And he could do that because, just as you and I can do, because we understand that God's wisdom is only going to be embraced by those for whom the Holy Spirit has revealed his light, his shining light. And then chapter 2, he, he digresses for a little bit to explain why he trusts God so much. He says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, not taught in words by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So we understand what we know about God and trust in him through his spirit's work. But he says, a natural man, verse 14, does not accept the things of the spirit of God they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So Paul, his, his approach to ministry was distinct because he understood how the Spirit works and how people are saved and sanctified. He said, and goes on to point out, that he does not use God, uh, the world's means to accomplish God's ends. He must do he must approach God's, mean, uh, God's ends using God's means, which is the word, with patience and humility. They, on the other hand, didn't want to do that. They were spiritually immature. And he calls that out in the beginning of chapter 3. That immaturity revealed itself, as it so often does in our churches, by a prideful elevation of their preferred leaders and their personal preferences. He begins in chapter 3 by saying, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? He says, I wanted to give you a big juicy steak of God's word, but I had, couldn't do that. I had, to give you, uh, I had to give you the baby food, the pablum, because your spiritual digestive, digestive system is so spiritually underdeveloped. I had to give you the milk instead of the meat. The irony of all that is that they thought they were grown up. They actually were, were convinced that they were the mature ones, that they were fully grown, and that they had the spirit. But because they were looking down on Paul and his message, the message of the cross and Paul's humble reliance on the Holy Spirit, as they looked down at that and they thought that was all baby food, they thought they'd graduated from that. It only confirmed that they weren't babies themselves. And so beginning in verse 5, all the way down through chapter 4, verse 5, Paul um, uses a series of, of images, metaphors, to help us think in humble ways and in mature ways about leaders in the church as well as gospel ministry in the church. He uses um, three images, particularly in chapter 3. He describes our gospel laborers and leaders in the church using the image of a farmer in verses 5 to 9. Some plant, some water, but in the end it's God who causes the church to grow. And then in verses 10 to 16, he describes leaders in our gospel efforts using the image of a builder. Some build with the perishable materials of God's word in, his, um, uh, in God's wisdom. Others burn, uh, build with the, Im, excuse me, the, the man builds with the perishable uh, items of man's wisdom. And God's people should be building with the gospel and God's word, the imperishable items that he describes there in those verses. And then in verses 17 to 23, he describes the church using the image of a temple. He, the, the, the church, the local church is described as the, the temple of God, and the Spirit himself dwells in that temple through his people, which is why anyone who tears down the church 
is to be expect God to respond in kind. He then goes on to remind us that we don't belong at the end of chapter 3. We don't belong to different leaders. You know, we don't have to run around and say, I am of Paul and I am of this person. No, no. We don't, have to, we don't belong to them. In a sense, he turns it around and says they belong to us. They're ours. They are there by God's grace to strengthen and to enrich our walk with Christ. He says it all belongs to you. Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are your possession and you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. See, because we've been united to him, we have been given everything. That's why we said we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So rather than saying, I'm only going to listen to this guy. No, no. He says, we have something to learn from so many. And we don't want to limit ourselves in that way. Those who have the privilege, again, of leadership in the church. He goes on in the beginning part of chapter 4 to describe us as servants and stewards of God's mysteries And our responsibility, our primary responsibility is, verse 2 of chapter 4, to be found trustworthy, to be faithful. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how many other people judge our ministry one way or another, or even what we think about our ministry. That is not determinative. What is determinative is God's judgment of our ministry, which he will do at the end of the age. And Paul makes that clear in verses 1 to 5. So from the opening verses of chapter 4, it is clear, because Paul really stops using images and so forth in chapter 4, and now he's speaking more plainly, what's driving their antagonism toward Paul or against Apollos or whoever was largely all their, their kind of factionalism was driven by an antagonism ultimately toward Paul. There is a sinful judgment that was happening that had taken root in their hearts, and they were pushing back against Paul's teaching and his apostolic authority. Verse 3, he says to me, it's a very small thing that I'd be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. And then he says in verse 5, The application is this, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes and he will judge. So we should be careful against judging uh, others prematurely. So all of that brings us to the doorstep of chapter 4, verse 6, which is where we pick up this morning. And if you were to distill down everything that we've studied thus far in chapter um, 1, 2, and 3, and the beginning part of chapter 4, You could say it like this. If the church is to be one, the word of the cross and the way of the cross must be followed, while the foolishness of the world and the failure of man's wisdom must be forsaken. I mean, that is the argument of chapters 1, 2, and 3. The way of the cross and the word of the cross, we're pursuing that. And we must... Forsake the foolishness and the failure of man's wisdom. Maybe to make it even more succinct, what Paul says here and teaches is that biblical unity in the local church puts pride to death and pursues humility. Biblical unity puts pride in all of its ugly forms to death and pursues humility at all costs. You can make the argument from Scripture not just here, but other places, that humility is the one character quality that equips us to be all that Christ wants us to be. And pride is the one character quality that stands in the way of all that Jesus commands us and desires us to be. That is the lesson God's people are having to learn and relearn and learn again all the time. So as we get to our text this morning, like I said a moment ago, Paul is done beating around the bush. Paul is done speaking to them subtly. He's done with the imagery. He's done with the indirect arguments. As we get into verses 6 and following to the end of the chapter, we see Paul begin to speak very plainly, very candidly. And he's making his points as straightforwardly as he knows how. 
he shows them and he shows us how their attitudes and their actions were not compatible with the way of the cross, exemplified by Christ himself and embodied by Paul and the other apostles, but instead was contrary to Christ and to Paul. So just follow along with me as we read verses 6 to 13. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. You see, the Corinthians were puffed up with pride. Pride in persons, pride in man's wisdom, pride in their personal opinions and judgments. But the word of the cross and the way of the cross is one of humility. It's the opposite of that. And Paul says, now is a time for choosing. Now is a time for you to pick a side. You can either continue boasting and biting one another like mere men, striving to be first, or... You can suffer and sacrifice for one another as Christ did and be content to be last in the eyes of the world. And we, we have that same choice to make as a church. Every one of us, we have a choice between what we'll call swagger Christianity and spectacle Christianity. Swagger Christianity reflects the wisdom of the world and all that the world values, and what Paul, using to pick up the term that Paul uses in verse 9, spectacle Christianity reflects the wisdom of God and what Christ values. And Paul, he draws a line in the sand and he says, you got to pick a side. You have to pick one. What's it going to be? Is it going to be more of the swagger Christianity or are you willing to embrace the spectacle Christianity that Christ exemplified, that we as apostles have striven to exemplify or not. Which one will you choose? If the church is going to grow, and if we're going to have a spirit of agreement, if we're going to be made complete and whole, if we're going to have the same mind and the same judgment like he talks about in chapter 1, we have to pursue a spectacle Christianity at all costs. And so that's what we're going to look at this week and next week. Because in the first part of these uh, this text, he exposes the problems of swagger Christianity. He lays out four specifically. And next week, we'll see how he contrasts that with a spectacle Christianity. He gives three uh, reasons why that is preeminent, why that should be our default aspiration as a church. So what we want to look at this morning is just the problems that he outlines here with a swagger Christianity, a Christianity whose cadence in the church is marked out by fleshly pride. What does that look like? And why is that a problem? So he lays out four, um, we're kind of drawing four um, specifics out of the text, and that's, that's going to be kind of our outline for this morning. First, a swagger Christianity steps outside the boundaries of God's revealed word. Swagger Christianity steps outside the boundaries of God's revealed word. If you look at verse 6, 
He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. So Paul, in the chapter 3, has gone from image to image. He's talked about the image of, um, of the farmer, the image of the temple, the image of a builder. He's saying all of that, all of those images, that's what these things is referring to. These things have been serving a larger point. And that is, your relationship to me and to Apollos is wrong. It is wrong. And in case you've somehow missed what I've been saying for the last three chapters, let me make it clear that I was going on and on so that you would learn what God expects and stop boasting in men and biting one another. The these things refers to what he said in the preceding section. And it was written for their benefit, for their sakes. That's the thing. Paul's correcting, but he's not correcting because he wants to be right. He's correcting because he wants them to be blessed. He wants them to operate within uh, the realm of Christ's church with, with spiritual vitality and well-being. He wants them to know what God expects and to live obediently to that because that only glorifies God, but it blesses them. It is their greatest good. So he says, I put all these various images and metaphors together so that you would not exceed what is written. Now, what does he mean by that term? What, what is he talking about, exceed what is written? Well, the phrase uh, oftentimes in Paul's letters, he'll talk about as it was written or as it is written, and then he quotes scripture. So, when he says, I don't want you to exceed what is written, the most reasonable interpretation of that phrase is that Paul's saying, I don't want you to exceed God's word. I don't want you to go beyond the boundaries of God's word. Here we see then a hallmark of a prideful swagger Christianity. It regularly steps outside of the boundaries of Scripture. It goes further than Scripture goes. And we can understand that. When pride runs amok in our hearts, we naturally establish our own standards of right and wrong. We begin to set our own standards for good and evil and our own standards for faithful and unfaithful. We essentially go beyond what the Word of God says. Matters of conscience and personal preference then become tests, suddenly tests of fellowship or Tests of orthodoxy. We need to be very careful. There is a unity can become and demand uniformity in the church, which is clearly not biblical. We can fall into this pharisaical trap that Jesus condemns in Mark, in Mark chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, when he says and points out that the Pharisees were teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, he said, you hold to the traditions of men. They had established all these rules that went beyond the scriptures, and then, and then they began teaching those things as if they were scripture. We do this even now. This has been a huge challenge because we live in a climate culturally where uniformity is the only acceptable form of unity. We have to be exactly the same. You need to see things exactly the way I see them. Or I can't have fellowship with you. I can't call you a friend. I can't call you a brother or sister in Christ. We need to be very careful. This is a serious issue. Swagger Christianity in pride erects man-made criteria which are not God's criteria for faithful leadership or God's criteria for obedience, or God's criteria for fellowship. And in the, so doing, they invalidate the word of God by their traditions. So this is a problem. He says, I'm writing to you. I've been explaining these things. I've been using this, these images so that you would not exceed what is written. This is the problem. It leads to another serious issue, which is the second point in our outline this morning. And that is, it prompts us to partiality. Swagger Christianity prompts us to partiality and partisan rivalry. 
Swagger Christianity prompts us to partiality, which is an unfaithful sort of choosing, and partisan rivalry. It's a really short drive from setting your own standards of righteousness to then evaluating and separating from others on, based on those standards. If you don't match up with my biblical sta- unbiblical standards, then you separate. You separate. Verse 6, I am writing these things so that you may, not learn, so you may learn not to exceed what is written. And then he goes on to say, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. That's partisan rivalry. They were boasting in men, boasting in their preferred leaders, and they were biting and they were devouring each other over their man-made criteria. It wasn't the substance of what they believed. The clear theology of Scripture was not causing them to divide. It was style. The variety of ways that each man is led them, each man was administered to them, Oh, I love Paul. I love Peter. I love Apollos and whatnot. That's why they're saying, I I belong to this guy or I belong to that guy. He says, no, 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 no. This is the wrong, this is the wrong attitude. It's important to note that the unity that the church experiences must be around clear theology. That's where unity happens. Unity does not happen around application. I'll say that one more time because that's worth noting. Unity in the church is not around the applications of Scripture, but the clear theology of Scripture. What does the Bible say about Jesus, about the Word of God, about the gospel, right? Key things, the church, like what is that? It's not how you apply those scriptures in specific contexts. People can have different understandings of scripture. And they can still be our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can still have fellowship with them. We can still love and serve them. But that wasn't happening in Corinth. It was the opposite. Each man's style was being measured against their personal preferences and their unbiblical standards, and it was dividing the church. They had become arrogant, one against the other. You know, what camp are you in? Are you friend or foe? And, and that's how they viewed everybody in the church. If you agree with me on all these superficial criteria, you're my friend, you're my brother or sister, you're my ally. If you differ from me in any meaningful way, anything at all, you're my enemy, you're my adversary, I can't have fellowship with you. That's the wrong attitude. A partisan, judgmental spirit toward our fellow believers in the church is the bitter fruit of pridefully elevating our standards, man-made standards, beyond God's word. Boasting in men rather than boasting in Christ. Paul says, I wrote to you so that you wouldn't go down this road any further. Third, Swagger Christianity is a problem because it forgets God is the gracious giver of all that is good in our lives. It forgets that God is the giver of all that is good in our lives. Verse 7, he says, For who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So, He spells out the reason why those who are puffed up against him and others, why they have it all wrong. That's what the four in verse seven is doing. It's linking verse six and verse seven. He's showing the reason that what they're doing is wrong. Their pride in persons was evidence of a lack of gratitude on their part. That's why he asked this rhetorical question, for who regards you as superior? And that's what was happening. They were acting as though they were the only true spiritual Christians. They were self-anointed as better than every other Christian. Paul says, who makes you different? What distinguishes you from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? 
The obvious answer is there's nothing that they have that God hasn't given them. It's all from him. They have everything they have by his gracious hand. We possess nothing inherently within ourselves. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? So he assumes the previous statement is true, that they have received everything from God. And he says it defies reason that you would boast about that as if it were somehow part of your nature, as if somehow you, you drum this up yourself. See, swagger Christianity, instead of recognizing everything as a gift from God and being filled with gratitude, it possesses its, one's gifts. It, it turns them into something intrinsic to their nature. You see them as your own, and you look down on those who don't measure up. Leaders, fellow believers in the church, they don't measure up. And so you, you look down on them. So these questions that Paul asks in verse 7, they really strike at the pride that's in our hearts. It, it's, it's convicting. When we're puffed up with pride, when we are so full of ourselves and so eager to pat ourselves on the back, we have to remember everything we have is from God. All of it. Our knowledge, our discernment, our giftedness, our responsibilities, our health, our strength, our time, our money. Fill in the blank. Everything comes from him. You earn none of it. All of it comes from Christ. So why would you ever boast about it as if you had not received it? It's all by his gracious hand. Swagger Christianity looks at all that we have and all that God's entrusted to us, and it says wrongly, my power and my strength have given me this wealth. Exactly what Moses warned Israel they would do if they forgot God. So, swagger Christianity is a problem because it forgets God as the gracious giver of all that we have. Fourth, swagger Christianity is brought to the foreground here in verses 8 to 10, 8 and 10, not 8, 9 and 10, but 8 and 10. Because it, it is a problem because it elevates man's values and denigrates what God values. It elevates man's values wrongly and denigrates, looks down at God's, what God values. Verse 8 says, you, have already, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. We are fools for Christ's sake, verse 10. But you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Paul, in verse 8, shifts to one of sarcasm. This is, this is if it reads sarcastically to you, that's because he's being sarcastic. Paul is employing verbal irony again just like he did in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. What he means by these statements is the exact opposite of what he really says on the face of it. That's what sarcasm does. He goes straight to the heart of the matter, attacking their own view of themselves. He says, wow, you've already been filled. You already have all the spiritual food you need. Nothing more that you need. You've already become rich. You think you, all, you have all the spiritual riches you could possibly acquire. Nothing more to gain. You've become kings apart from us. You, you've gotten to the mountaintop, and there's not even room for us at the mountaintop. No need to share that with us. You see, they were thinking and acting as if God's final reign was already had already begun. And they were the only ones who arrived at the celestial city. Everyone else was just stumbling and bumbling along, but they were there. And Paul sweeps the leg out from under them at the end of verse 8 with this final sarcasm. He says, I, I wish that were true. I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. And I wish all, all that I just said was true because... 
then we might have the privilege of reigning with you in all of your sufficiency. I wish that was true because that would mean that, that the kingdom of God was on earth and we would be a part of that, that kingdom that we keep anticipating, that kingdom we keep hoping for. If that were true, boy, that would be great. We could reign with you. It's meant to bring them down a notch. See, the other apostles, they, they viewed them in a negative way. They saw them and they viewed their weakness and they looked down on that. See, swagger Christianity elevates man's values. Reigning, ruling, being first, being large and in charge. Verse 10, he says, you know, you're, you're prudent, you're strong, you're distinguished. Uh, th- these are all the desires of the flesh. You don't have to have the Holy Spirit to want those things, to be in charge, to have authority, to be first, to occupy positions of responsibility, to have other people look up to you. Right? That, that doesn't require any spiritual power, self-righteous prudence. All of that is what the world values. But swagger Christianity elevates that and it denigrates what God values, which we can extrapolate from these verses and the subsequent verses are weakness, being counted fools for Christ's sake, being accounted as nothing and treated accordingly. All right, these are all the things the Corinthians said, that's, that's not for us. We're not going to occupy any position of weakness or lowliness. We're not going to be treated shamefully at the hands of the world. We're not going to be mocked. No. He says, that couldn't possibly be what God has for me or for my family or for the church. None of that. But they were wrong. And Paul points that out. Swagger Christianity fails to understand that we are in this present age living in an upside-down kingdom. We live in an upside-down kingdom. We are strangers and aliens. The ruling and the reigning and the honor and the glory will come in the future. But they wanted it now. The Corinthians, like so many in our churches today, had an over-realized eschatology. They were just a little bit ahead of the game. They failed to recognize that the weaknesses and the humiliation and the rejection that Christ experienced, that Paul and the other apostles had experienced, and that so many other faithful believers have experienced through the centuries, they fail to understand that that reflects the true nature of discipleship, this side of heaven. That is discipleship that conforms to the word of the cross and the way of the cross. Matthew 10, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, and that the slave, like his master, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Jesus ended that section in verse 38 of Matthew 10 by reminding his hearers, The true discipleship requires taking up one's cross every day and following him. That's a picture of self-denial, weakness, persecution, difficulty. There's no glory in that. No glory in that. Jesus said that is the way of following him. 2 Timothy 3.12 Paul says at the end of his life, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's no getting around that. If you take a stand for the truth of Scripture, you will bring difficulty into your life. Somehow, some way. Maybe it's family. Sadly, 
It could also be others who profess faith in Christ. The culture, somehow, some way, you will experience pushback. And swagger Christianity seeks the pride and the glory of a crown without the humiliation and the weakness of the cross. And Paul says that's not how it works. There will be a crown. There will be reigning and ruling and and reward. But that is in the future. The way we go now is the way Christ went. We are walking into a hostile world that rejects the gospel, that rejects God's word, God's will. And we have to be willing to take a stand for what's true, regardless of how that looks. Does that make us look like fools? Paul says, I'd rather be counted a fool for Christ's sake. Does that make us look backwards? So be it. Does that mean that we will lose friendships and relationships with other Christians who don't want to see things the way God's word says them? That might be true. That might cost you relationships. But that's the way it works. So swagger Christianity elevates man's values and it denigrates what God values. Paul says, I would rather boast about my weaknesses for when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, I'm a fool for Christ's sake. And that's okay with him. He was okay with that. When Jesus came preaching and teaching about his kingdom and who would and wouldn't be citizens of it, he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Those who walk in arrogant pride and insist on worldly preeminence and fearing man and feeding the desires of their flesh will in the future, he said, be cut down under the judgment of divine wrath. He who exalts himself, he said, will be humbled. Conversely, those who walk in humility, content with lowliness, fearing God, and following in his son's footsteps will in the future, he says, be elevated to the place of divine blessing in God's kingdom. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Arrogance, pride, self-sufficiency, they are not compatible with the kingdom of God. It causes us to step outside the boundary of God's word. It prompts us to partiality and partisan rivalry in the church. It forgets that God is the gracious giver of all that is good in our lives. And it ends up elevating what man values and denigrating what God values. But the contrast we're going to see next Sunday in verses um, 9, 11 to 13 is what we'll call spectacle Christianity. And we're getting that from verse 9. He says, we have become a spectacle to the world. It's almost like something the world gawks at to make light of. But that is the path of humility, lowliness, persevering trust in Jesus, all the hallmarks of true discipleship. That is what Paul is calling them to. That is what he's calling us to as the church. And what we'll see next Sunday is the preeminence of what we'll call spectacle Christianity. Paul says, To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We toil, work with our own hands. We're reviled, we're persecuted, we're slandered, treated as if we are the scum, the off-scouring of the world, the dregs, the detritus at the bottom of the barrel. I don't see a lot of Christians embracing that right now. This is what God calls us to be and to put up with and to do and embrace. But there is no crown without the cross. 
And Paul writes to them to confront this and to call them out that they would be these kind of Christians. Because he goes on in chapter um, 4. He says, I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. He says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Be like me. Be like Apollos. Be like Peter and others who have gone this way. So this is a, it's inescapable. This is what we are to pursue. This is what we're to follow after. And only then can the church truly be one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, confrontation that Paul has given to us. We pray that we would really look deep within our own hearts to see where where pride is uh, lurking. It's always there, fighting against the spirit. Our flesh is always at war, as it were. Um, we're doing the things that we don't want to do, and we don't do the things that we want to do, and there's this constant struggle. And yet, when we look to um, our own hearts, we see nothing but failure and, just, and sin and struggle. But when we look to Christ, we see obedience, we see righteousness, we see hope, we see forgiveness. We pray that we would cling to that cross because that is our only hope. And as we see all that Christ endured and all that he suffered, as we take his words into account that all who are uh, following in the footsteps of the master will experience the same persecution and difficulties that he experienced, may we uh, then be ready to walk through this life and be faithful to you. We pray that you would guard our church from the evil one, his deceptive schemes that would take and leverage the pride in our hearts and use that to divide the church, to drive a wedge between groups of people or between leaders or anything else, Lord. And instead, may we walk the path of a spectacle, Christianity, one that is lowly and humble, trusting in you, holding fast to your word, not going further and not going, not falling behind what your word says, but holding fast to the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.